from the National Association of Evangelicals. Welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, the growing class gap among American young people. Host Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, talks with Robert Putnam, Malcolm Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University. Let's join in. Today's conversation comes to you from the National Association of Evangelicals in Washington, D.C. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, and today's guest is Dr. Robert Putnam of Harvard University. Robert Putnam is the Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the British Academy and past president of the American Political Science Association. He's received a long list of honors. He's the author of 14 books and they've been translated into more than 20 languages. Some very familiar titles like Bowling Alone and Making Democracy Work. They have become frequently cited publications in the social sciences. He has consulted around the world three American presidents, the last three, plus British prime ministers, the French president, prime ministers around the world, and hundreds of grassroots leaders and activists in many countries. His latest book is the focus of today's conversation, titled Our Kids, the American Dream in Crisis. It was published in March 2015, and it's about the growing class gap among American young people. In May 2015, he was the plenary speaker for the NAE co-sponsored Catholic Evangelical Summit on Overcoming Poverty. It was held at Georgetown University, and during the conference, Dr. Putnam presented on a panel along with President Barack Obama. And there is a lot more introduction I would just really like to give, but he is the one that we want to hear from. So welcome to today's conversation. We are just delighted to have you. Thanks, Leith. I am in turn really delighted to be uh, able to talk with you and, and with your uh, followers. Professor, America is a buzz over your new book, Our Kids, and I've got to tell you, I'm amazed at how many people I talk to who have already read it. In it, you claim that there is a large and growing class divide in our nation that's more than money and more than race. So what are these classes and what's happening here? Well, what's happening is, in the biggest picture, is that there is, of course, this has been widely known, a, a growing um, inequality in income distribution. People who are less uh, affluent and less uh, well-educated um, have not really had a raise for, for almost 30 years. So there's a growing income gap. As I say, that's been widely discussed. Our society has become more segregated by uh, social class by education and income. People are more likely to live near people from a of a different race or a different religion. We're more likely to have friends or to even marry people from a different race or a different religion. But in social class terms, in terms of education and income, we're less likely to live near people uh, who have a different income or educational level than we used to. We're less li our kids are less likely to go to school with kids from a different social black background. And we're even less likely to marry someone from a different class um, background. So in, in that sense, our society has become more and more polarized into, into maybe really two different societies, an affluent society of college-educated Americans who are doing pretty well. I'm not talking just about the ultra-rich. I'm talking about people 
basically in the upper third of American society, which amounts to being people who have a college education, and a growing gap, I should say, between them and the lower third of American society, people who have gotten not gotten past high school. They may have a high school degree, but they have not gotten past high school. And, and that gap, that divide, that really serious divide between those two Americas is, I think, causing grave problems, especially for kids. And that, as you know, that's what the book is focused on, which is what difference does all this make for our kids? Do these classes know about each other? I, I know generally they know about each other, but are they aware of how different lives no, are? Um, I think that's, that's one reason I wrote the book, actually, uh, Leith, because I think, you know, when I was growing up in the 50s, or even more recently than that, lots of people knew people from the other side of the tracks. I mean, you, you, you know, I grew up in a small town, and, and we, I described this a little bit in, in Bowling Alone. My hometown was a small town, but, and, and there were, of course, some people in town better off than others, but we all played on the same teams, and we all went to the same school, and we dated, and we all, many of us went to church together, so there wasn't such a big class divide, and we knew about the lives that other people led. That's less true now, much less true, and therefore, lots of people of goodwill who are on the upper side of what we call what I call the opportunity gap, that is people from college educated backgrounds simply are unaware of how bad things have gotten down in the lower third of American society. That's why there are so many stories in my book of, of kids from what I call rich kids and poor kids. I have lots of stories because I want to say to, to the readers of the book who are likely to be themselves pretty well educated, I want to say, do you know how bad things have gotten down there at the in the bottom part of our society? Do you really want to live in an America in which there are kids growing up in that kind of, of desolation? I want to comment on some of those stories. So I have a degree in sociology, and I'm just fascinated by the graphs in your book. You have these fascinating scissors graphs that show the divergence of class-based children's experiences. So tell us, what are those graphs all about? There's such similarity in the two or more different lines among all these graphs so that, well, what do they reveal about our society? They show how that impinges on, how that affects kids. And, and the answer is it affects them terrifically and, and, and for, the, for the worse. So, for example, um, take st family stability. We know that family stability is really, really important. And among um, high school, uh, college-educated Americans now, the vast majority of kids growing up in college-educated homes, more affluent homes, the vast majority of them are going up in two-parent families, mostly with their two biological parents. Uh, about 92% of those kids have two parents in their family. But kids on the bottom side of the opportunity gap, that is kids coming from high school-educated homes, two-thirds of them ha have only a single parent. And, and by the way, I'm talking about kids of all races. This is not a matter of race. It's a matter of social class. So that means one part of this growing gap, the scissors, the scissors graph shows this growing gap between, you know, actually my people coming from the kind of background that my grandchildren are coming from. That is, they are mostly increasingly having two parents. And uh, whereas at the other other side of the scissors graph, the, the graph for kids with from coming from the lower third, they're less and less likely to have to be living in families with two parents. But you see the same growing divergence in terms of how much money parents are spending on their kids, 
for things like summer camp and piano lessons and, and soccer practice and trips to Europe and computers and so on, monies that, that nowadays kids in the upper part of the, of the class hierarchy get about $7,000 a year uh, from their parents, in, I don't mean in dollars, but in, in, in summer camps and so on, as opposed to, you know, not, not even $1,000 a year for poor kids. Similarly, in terms of the amount of time, what we call the good night moon gap, kids, get, kids growing up in, in comfortable, affluent homes are very likely to get many more hours a week with their parents interacting to them, reading to them, or, or you know, going to the zoo or whatever. And, and we know that's really important for, for brain development. There's a growing gap in the quality of the schools kids go to. Increasingly, kids, upper-class kids are going to, kids with, going to school with other upper-class kids, and lower-class kids are going to less able, I mean, less effective schools, low-income schools. There's a, there's a growing gap in, in the amount of mentoring that kids get from their communities. And one of the ways in which that shows up is a growing gap in youth church attendance. So church attendance is down for all American youth. Um, that's been long noted over the last 20 years or so, a decline in youth attendance at church. But that graph, that decline in church attendance among America's young people is concentrated among working class kids, not middle class kids. So there again, um, there's an, the, these working class kids are more isolated I, uh, of all races, I, I want to make clear there may be some theological consequences of the fact that they're not in church, but I'm especially concerned because we know that churches are a rich source of social support for kids. The religious communities are really good at, at reaching out to help other people, but if the, if the poor kids are simply not there, then again, they're isolated, and that's another one of these scissors graphs. You tell stories about the church involvements that... Uh, children have had and then their families have had. By the way, one of the things that just I think is so unusual about our kids, it is a combination of academic research and page-turning stories about real people. So I note that there are about a hundred pages of footnotes almost with the index, but there are loads of personal stories. And I, I, want, I want to hear about those real people. I don't know, maybe you even want to tell us one of their stories, but how did you get their stories? And and how did you connect to real folk? Um, well, the, the real answer to that question is I have a terrific younger colleague um, named Jen Silva, um, who teaches at Lehigh University now, and uh, she worked for a couple of years on our research team. She's wonderful at reaching out to kids. So we went to places, towns and cities all across America and talked to, in each community, we talked to a sample of, of kids from affluent homes, we called those rich kids, and but they weren't they weren't like, you know, super affluent. They were just college educated homes. And similarly, comparable kids who were coming from less well off homes. And she met them in, you know, places like um you know, they might be working at a at a um uh, you know at the working at a uh, McDonalds or maybe maybe uh, Walmart or she met them, you know, at some bar or something, some place where kids hang out. And um what the story, let me tell you, for example, a story of uh, two kids. Uh, these both happen to be Latino kids, and they're in Orange County, California. Uh, two families, I mean. Um, the, they're both second-generation Latino, family, Latino families. Um, one of the families has been very successful, and they live in one of the most affluent areas of Orange County. Their kids go to a school that's, according to Newsweek, the 43rd best high school in America, so they have tons of 
of um, AP courses and lots of peer pressure to do well in school and, and lots of SAT practices and lots of extracurriculars and so on. And, and their kids all are going to top quality. All the kids out of that family are going to top quality schools, universities across America. Meanwhile, 10 miles away, a straight shot down the Orange Freeway, uh, we interviewed uh, a couple of uh, young, pair of young women in um, Santa Ana, California, which is one of the most devastated working class Latino communities in America. Um, one of the most dangerous cities in America, actually, because of gang violence. These two kids were raised by their grandparents. Uh, raised by their grandparents because their parents basically vanished from their lives when they were infants. The grandparents stepped in and did a did a decent job, but then the grandmother died and the and the grandfather remarried. So the kids didn't have really when they went into high school a stable family, and and they're living in utter utter isolation. These two young women. I mean, I admire them a lot, but I really do because they're living in a they're they're. They have no adult supervision, no adult support, nobody looking out for them. Um, we gave kids, uh, all the kids we talked to, we gave $50 as, as just a reward for working with us. And these kids had to spend that $50 that we gave them to have a wake for a cousin of theirs who had been shot the previous evening in gang warfare just across the neighborhood from them. I mean, these and so it's the contrast, the heartbreaking contrast between kids that are in some respects they look the same they they seem to be have the same native talents but because of through no fault of their own they end up on different sides of the track and that means that they're living completely different lives and with very different prospects for the future the Orange County story stands out in my mind after reading your book I, I think more than any other one piece of that is this little girl who, because she had a Latina last name, was put in a class where they spoke Spanish, and she didn't understand Spanish for the entire year. I can hardly get my head around that story. Her older sister, who was acting kind of like a substitute parent, went in to talk to the school, and the school said they couldn't they couldn't arrange for this girl to be transferred out of a out of this Spanish language class, even though she understood not a word. It's just how could they? What adult would be thinking of? In responding like that, that's the you know, I get really get angry when I think about these stories because the most uniform thing about all the poor kids in our story is that they are isolated from everyone. They've been they've basically been abandoned in some sense by their parents, by the schools, by their neighbors, by their churches. They're just out of touch with everybody, and that is none of us could grow up that way if we didn't have you know loving regular adults checking in with us, giving us advice, helping us out when we, when we make mistakes. That's what these poor kids lack. And that's unlikely to happen in an upper-class neighborhood in school. You know, we had some friends not long ago, Leith, um, who called us uh, about our age. They've got grandchildren. They, they said that one of their grandsons had gotten in trouble um, out west at where he was going to school. Uh, got in some trouble with drugs. I don't know the details of the story. Maybe he was even dealing drugs. But, and we were commiserating, of course, with these people as their friends. And we were saying, oh, it's really too bad. How much how are you feeling about it? And, so on. and they said back, well, yeah, it is, it is too bad. But we, on the other hand, he's on the case out there. We found the best rehab facility for our grandson. And he's there already in the rehab facility. So it's, it's not going to be so bad. And I turned to my wife and I said, airbags. When kids do dumb things, 
in affluent homes, instantly airbags inflate. I'm not being even critical of them. That's sort of what I would do if my grandchildren got in trouble. But in the lives of these poor kids, if they do exactly the same dumb thing, no airbags. There's a part of us that wants to find the one thing that is wrong and the one thing that we can fix. But it's not that simple, is it? It's a lot of things. Yeah, as you know, I've called this a purple problem, uh, thinking of the, the increasing division of our public life into pure red and pure, pure blue. But this is a problem, part of which you can see most clearly through red progressive lenses. You can see the collapse of the factories and how that has devastated many working class families. On the other hand, parts of the problem you can see most clearly through, through um, uh, I misspoke before, I said a red progressive lens, I meant blue progressive lenses, but you can see some of the, the facts you can see most clearly through conservative lenses, that is through red lenses, you can see the uh, collapse of the working class family. And, and in, you can see that in the stories of these, of these two young women in, in, um, in Orange County who, whose parents, frankly, were, they were, they were not nice people. Um, but you can see both, if you have, if you have purple lenses, you can see both the economic structural causes of this poverty, the deindustrialization of America, the long stagnation of working class wages, and, and you can also see the collapse of the family and, and, and all the things that that has led to as far as kids are concerned. Um, so it's a complicated problem. I, I'm not actually, I think we could, the, the economic, and the, the, the policy, let me start that sentence again. I think that figuring out the right policies is actually not the most difficult thing in this case. The most difficult thing for Americans to realize, these are all our kids. We have a moral responsibility to help these kids. You and I do. Even though our kids or grandchildren are, are going to be okay, they're not going to be okay if they're living in a world in which a third of the young people are growing up without adult supervision and without the opportunities that our kids have. And children are bipartisan, aren't they? I mean, if we're talking about everything as far as adults are concerned, it might be a different deal, but everybody's heart and everybody's responsibility goes to our kids. That's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, this is, as I'm sure you and, and many of the people who, who are your followers, um, I mean, your, your, your readers and, and listeners will realize this is, I think, a deeply moral issue. I mean, it, and this is one reason why I relish the fact that now increasingly um, religious, America's religious communities are getting involved with this question. I think it's, it's the kind of problem which you really ought to say, this is a, it's a sin that people are living in lives like that. Now, of course, in our secular age, you can't really say this is a sin, that you can't say that in secular circles, but it is a deeply morally troubling development, and it didn't do, didn't you, but it's also economically irrational because not investing in these poor kids is going to cost all of us a ton of money. The best estimates from the from the um, from the economists is it's going to cost about five trillion dollars. The fact that we're we have all these twenty-five million kids uh, our economy. I think I can say it's a sin, and you said it's a sin. So we're, we're kind of in agreement on that. All right, you're touring America with your book. When you and I were previously talking, I'm amazed at the places you've been and how much you've done. And you are one of the most sought-after professors at Harvard. You are a busy man. So out of all your invitations, why did you accept an invitation to speak at a Catholic evangelical summit on poverty? 
at least I was partly flattered, flattered by it. <laughs> as you know, I'm a Jew and, and, and a fairly secular Jew at that. I have a lot of respect for religion. Indeed, my previous book was, was all about religions, various religions in America. So I deeply uh, respect and revere American religious traditions, but it was a little surprise to me to be invited to speak there. But the reason I did is because I think this is a case where the, the public involvement of America's religious communities is crucial to solving this problem. I said when I spoke there that I thought it's close to being a necessary condition and a sufficient condition to solving the problem. That is, unless America's religious communities get involved, I mean seriously involved, not just in providing um, you know, philanthropy, which they are already doing, but in, in the public sphere, uh, putting emphasis to our elected representatives that this is a big deal, this, this growing opportunity gap. If, if the religious communities don't get involved in that, I think it's going to be hard to solve the opportunity gap. On the other hand, if religious communities do get involved, I think that clinches the deal, honestly, because I think religious communities, this is a point I was making before about saying it's a sin. Religious communities bring to the table, whenever there's a discussion of, 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 of policies uh, nationally or in local communities, they bring, to bear, they bring to bear in those discussions a kind of a moral conviction that is hard to, for secular people to rally. And so I spoke there, I was delighted to speak there because I think it marks, I hope it marks, uh, an increasing uh, commitment by America's Catholics and Jews, and uh, sorry, Catholics, and an increasing commitment by America's Catholics and Evangelicals and other religious communities too, to making this narrowing of the opportunity gap a priority for all of us. So look, really specific, what can we do, especially what can churches do to help kids who don't have the opportunities that we should all want them to have? Well, look, I go back to the point I made before. The most uniform characteristic of these kids, these poor kids, is that they are alone. They're isolated. They're deeply fearful and they're deeply cynical and distrustful of the world. And they need mentors. They, well, or let me put it a different way. They need loving, responsible adults in their lives who they can count on. And that sounds like mentoring, and I mean it to be mentoring, but I don't mean, you know, take a poor kid to lunch this week. That's not what I'm talking about. These kids have plenty of unreliable adults in their lives. What they need is a reliable adult who's there whenever they need him, who's there, you know, to work as an airbag when the kid makes a dumb decision, there to guide them and, and help them figure out, well, what course should I be taking this year? Um, and And I know that churches can be a more a richer source of social support uh, for America's poor kids than they are right now. You can see in the story, we have a story in set in Philadelphia in which the local evangelical church is actually the only stable thing in the lives of these poor kids. It's really, it's a wonderful example of how churches can be, but they have to be in the lives regularly. And, and the fact is that story in Philadelphia is still too rare. Um, there are too many of America's poor kids who just don't have anybody on their side. I've been telling people to buy and to read your book, but by far you are the best ad for what you have written. So can you give us a final word, especially is there a word of hope for the future? Yeah, I think, I think there is, uh, Leith. Look, this is not the first time that America has faced a problem like this. We had a very similar crisis, a big gap between rich and poor. Uh, about 100 years ago, at the end of the 19th century, um, uh, a, a, it was a 
period of, of great economic inequality. It was a period of rapid uh, immigration. It was a period of great political distrust and, and corruption, frankly. Um, and um, and the, 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 the public philosophy at the time was so-called social Darwinism. That is the idea that everybody would be better off if everybody was just selfish and looked out for number one and the devil take the hindmost. It was a time, frankly, in deep respects, troubling respects like our own. But then, and this is the good news, over a period of about five or ten years at the turning of the century, beginning of the 20th century, Americans began to realize, to recognize and realize how great these gaps had gotten in our society and Americans began to work to figure out how to fix them. The, the beginning ideas did not come from Washington or from Cambridge, Mass. The best ideas came from, you know, small towns in, in the Midwest. For example, the American high school was invented then. God did not invent the American high school, or if he or she did, it, here's how he did it. He got, it, he got kids, I mean, he got local folks in Topeka and other places like that to say, you know, we ought to give free secondary education to everybody here in town, not just my own kids, but everybody's kids ought to, ought to benefit. And, and it was a great decision. It, it was a wonderful decision that boosted the American economy for most of the 20th century, and it leveled the playing field. And it required, in the short run, it required people of means to pay more taxes so that everybody's kid could get a high school education. But in the long run, everybody was better off. Everybody, rich and poor, were all better off. So this is not something that's, you know, I'm not trying to say that we, America ought to become Sweden, for goodness sakes. I'm trying to say America ought to become more like America has been in the past, awake to the needs of all of our kids, not just, you know, our own biological kids, but all these kids are our kids. That's surely what the message of, of the Christian gospel is, that they're all our kids. And, and if we think of them that way, I'm pretty sure we can figure out exactly what we need to do over the next, you know, five or ten years. I'm pretty optimistic. Ah, there's so much more to talk about. Well, our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Robert Putnam, renowned social scientist and Harvard professor and author of Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. I'm Leif Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Professor Putnam. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at NAE.net. <laughs>